We are right in the middle of a tiny little three-part series that we're calling The Generous Life. And really all we're hoping to do in this series is to cultivate in you and in me a heart of generosity that leads to lives of generosity because we serve a God who has been so very generous with us and we're made in his image and so we're called to be generous too. Um, and so Ryan did a great job last week. If you didn't hear his message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it, talking about, uh, he was introducing us, talking to the idea of being generous with our materials, generous with our finances. And he talked about a number of the different spiritual disciplines that God calls us to, because God does call us to be generous with our finances. And in my experience, when we do things like tithing, which the Lord does call us to, taking aside 10% of our income and giving it to the Lord, uh, we start to learn to be generous more often in general with all of our finances and our income. And as we start to learn to be generous with that, we start to learn to be generous with all that we have and with all that we are. Um, and so I would really encourage you, if that's not a part of your just your normal daily life, uh, if that's not one of the spiritual disciplines that you're engaged in regularly, I'd encourage you to start engaging in spiritual disciplines of generosity like tithing. Um, because the goal is that we would be generous with all that we are and all that we have. And so today we're going to be talking about generosity with our affection. Uh, next week, uh, Jeff is going to be talking about generosity with our attention. Um, and, and I think I probably don't need to sell you guys on how important affection is, right? Like you're, you're a human being. You know that we need love so very, very, very badly, don't you? It's, it's just like, it's like the air that we breathe affection. In the 1980s, uh, there was a dictator in Romania, a communist dictator, uh, who implemented a ton of policies. And, and there were two major results of a, of a series of policies that he implemented. One was an absolute explosion in the birth rate. They had thousands and thousands and thousands more babies being born all the time. Um, and the other major uh, effect of his policies was a complete and total crash of their economy. And so when you have tons more babies and you have a broken economy... Uh, you end up tragically having thousands of babies being abandoned. And so the government pulled as many of these babies together as they could find, and they raised them in government orphanages. And in these orphanages, they had these massive uh, cradle rooms, they were called, rooms maybe as big as this that were just filled with dozens and dozens, maybe even, you know, a hundred or so uh, cradles that each had babies in them. And in these cradle rooms, they had on average maybe one adult worker to every 20 infants. And if you've ever taken care of a baby, um, you know that taking care of 20 babies is barely possible, right? Like one adult can only just barely manage to feed and change and bathe and clothe 20 infants in a day. There is no margin left over for playing or laughing or holding or cuddling or showing any kind of affection. And so the vast majority of these babies who spent time in these cradle rooms, the ones who spent two, three or four years, and even the ones who only spent three or four months in there before being adopted, the vast majority of these babies ended up with some sort of significant mental, emotional, psychological, even at times physical deformity or handicap or some brokenness. Why? Because we need, we need affection. Like human beings need affection, like food and clothes and water is not enough. We need love very badly. And I probably didn't need to tell you a story about babies under communism to convince you that human beings need affection, right? It's, it's very obvious to us. But if we are so very aware of how much everybody around us needs affection, why then is it so hard for us to be generous with our affection? Why are we so stingy with our affection? Why does it seem impossible to go to work and to sit down to the person next to the person in the desk next to you and to say, hey, I like, I like sitting next to you. 
Why is it so hard for us to say positive, encouraging, and loving things for people? Why is it when the Bible says greeting one another with a holy kiss, we're like, well, that's, mm -mm, mm, no, thank you. Not gonna happen. Why is it so hard for us to be generous with our affection when we know how much everybody needs it? Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I had a friend, his name was Boyan. Uh, Boyan had recently just moved to America from Eastern Europe, and he was just beginning to learn uh, to speak English. His comprehension was, was pretty okay, but his vocabulary was very limited. And Boyan was one of the most mischievous people I think I have ever met. I, I really liked hanging out with Boyan, mostly because I liked watching the wake of chaos that followed behind him. Um, and I remember we had seventh grade math together and I sat in the far back left of the class and Boyan sat in the desk right in front of me and there was this girl in the far back right of the class named Sonia who had a little bit of a crush on Boyan. And Sonia was sweet and gentle, innocent, precious little seventh grade girl. And one day while our teacher was like, you know, had her back to the class and was like writing up on the chalkboard, um, while that was happening, I saw Sonia pull out a loose piece of paper and start writing a little note on there. And then she folded that note up very gently, very precisely, very carefully. And on the back of the note, she wrote, pass to Boyan. She took that note and she passed it to the girl on her left who passed it to the boy on her left who then, much to, to Sonia's horror, opened the letter and read the letter. And I remember seeing her like sinking back in the desk like, oh no. And he chuckled a little bit, folded it up, passed it to the next boy. That boy opened up the letter and read it too. And she's like, why are you punching my soul? Like what's happening, you know? And he folds it up, passes it, a couple more people get it. And then, and then one other boy opens and reads the note and she just dies a little bit more. And then finally the note comes to me and I pass it forward to Boyan. And uh, Boyan opens the letter and reads it. It didn't take him very long to read it. And I remember so distinctly, just because it was so funny the way he did it, he kind of turns around like, like, a, like a giraffe, you know, with his neck around him. He goes, psst, hey. And, and I said, what? And he takes the note and he passes it back to me. He says, read. And, and, I, and I read the note. It's just one simple sentence. It says, Boyan, I really like you. Will you be my boyfriend? I know, so sweet. And then beneath that, she had drawn two little check boxes, one next to the word yes and one next to the word no. And I thought, this is so sweet. Love is in the air in my head. I'm singing the Lion King, Can You Feel the Love Tonight song, you know? And I'm like, Boyan needs a sweet, gentle girl like Sonia to keep him in check. And she's cute. This will be great. This will be wonderful, you know? So I, I pass him the note and I smile and I give him a thumbs up, you know? And I thought Boyan was going to take out a pen or a pencil and check, you know, yes or maybe no, and then fold it up and discreetly pass it back to, to Sonia. Instead, what he did while the teacher was still had her back to the class and was writing on the chalkboard, instead he stands up in the middle of class and he shouts across the classroom, Hey, Sonia! And it was so obvious by, by the look on her face how broken her heart was, like shattered to pieces. And everyone instantly, I mean, half the class already knew it was on the letter anyway, you know. And she's just, she's absolutely and utterly destroyed. And it was in that moment that I learned something that honestly I'd learned before and I definitely learned many times afterwards. Right, that when we express our affection, we make ourselves incredibly vulnerable, don't we? 
And Sonia knew that, right? That's why she didn't talk to Boyan at lunch or after school when he could explain to her why he didn't like her, right? She devised a perfect plan that like, if he was gonna reject her, the worst thing that was gonna happen was she was gonna a little checkbox next to the word no. She was gonna get that. And she could go back and sink into a corner and lick her wounds in private, right? But instead, like it got exposed and people saw what she was saying. They saw her feelings. And then worst of, worst of all, Boyan saw a chink in her armor and he stabbed her right in the heart, didn't he? And my guess is you have stories just like Sonia's. Maybe a lot like Sonia's. Maybe you remember having feelings for a boy or a girl at some point in time and you told them your feelings and they were rude and cruel and mean and they just destroyed you as they shot you down. Or maybe they were kind and gentle and they put you down easy, but at the same time still, the words that they used to, to just say no, like they, they still echo in your head and they bring with them a little twinge of heartbreak even now years later. Or, or maybe it was a parent that you loved and cared for who was cold and distant. Maybe it was an older sibling and you just wanted to be just like them, but they couldn't stand you and they were so mean to you and they didn't even want to see you, especially when their friends were over, right? Or maybe it was a close friend that you shared deep secrets and hurts and wounds with and they used those wounds to stab you in the back. Maybe it was a boss that you looked up to and you thought, I'm their guy. I'm their girl. We're tight. But then they passed you up for the promotion, then they dragged you through the mud, then they publicly shamed you. I don't know what your stories are, but I know that you have them. You probably have dozens of them. You honestly probably have hundreds of them. And so we learn over time not to be generous with our affection, but to be really stingy with it, to hide it in our pockets and to only pull it out when we are most certain that we're safe and that our, uh, that our affection will be reciprocated, that it will be returned to us. And so we find ourselves wondering, well, how can, I, how can I protect myself from that vulnerability? How can I be generous with my affection and maybe shield myself from the risks that might come if I make myself vulnerable? Well, Jesus, Jesus was fully God. Jesus was also fully man, which means that he knows exactly what it's like to be vulnerable when he expresses his affection. So maybe we can look at Jesus's life and try to figure out, you know, how we could shield ourselves from some of that, some of that danger, how we could mitigate the risks of being vulnerable as we express our affection to other people. And so that's going to take us uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 8. We're going to look at two stories in the book of Matthew. The first I'm going to read. The second one I'm just going to tell you guys for the sake of time. It's a short story. You could probably read it while I'm talking if you want to. Um, and these are both stories, uh, they're two out of three stories of Jesus uh, healing people. And we'll skip the third story because it's very similar to the first story, just a little bit shorter. But in the first story, it says this, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. So uh, maybe you've heard this story before, maybe you haven't, but Jesus is approached by a man with leprosy. Leprosy uh, could be, <coughs> excuse me, leprosy could be a number of different skin diseases uh, that we, we recognize different origins of that disease these days. And they all kind of get blanketed under uh, leprosy. But all of these diseases are basically really, really nasty skin or neurological diseases that are like, uh, like with your nervous diseases that rot your body away slowly but surely. 
Right? Some have open sores and wounds that just slowly develop. And it, it's a very slow, painful, unpleasant death sentence, getting leprosy. And you're slowly, you're going to lose a finger and then a hand and maybe a toe and a foot and then an arm and a leg. And you're just going to slowly kind of erode away. And the Mosaic law, the law that the people of Israel were under, uh, had certain rules for quarantining of people with leprosy, right? So if you contracted leprosy, you'd go and they would figure out, okay, yeah, that, they, they confirm, yeah, that's leprosy. That's not a good deal. And then you'd have to go and live in this little section on the back of the town, <clears throat> away from everyone else. Uh, and, and you wouldn't be able to touch anyone, and no one could touch you, because if they touched you, A, they might contract leprosy, B, they would become ritually, ceremonially unclean. And so you live alone, and, and, and then these other laws, right, like if you go out in public, you have to cover up all of your wounds and, and all of your sores, you have to cover them with cloth so no one can see them. And then when you go in public, if you do, you have to walk around saying, unclean, 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 I'm unclean, stay away, I'm unclean. And the other gospels, when they tell this same story, they tell us that this man had leprosy all over his body, which means that he had probably had this for years. If the man had a family, it had been years since he had picked up his kids. It had been years since he has kissed his wife. It had been years since he had been able to hold his mother or his father. And it had almost certainly been years since anyone had looked at him with anything but absolute disgust. And Jesus does something so shocking here, doesn't he? He walks up to the man and he touches him. I don't know about you, but I don't make a habit of touching people who have skin diseases. Right, and this isn't some light skin disease, you know? And, 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 and when Jesus touches the man, he's making himself so incredibly vulnerable. Imagine just the sense that the man is getting, like, wow, so no one's touched me in so long. Like, just, just like the electricity that would be running through his body with the expression of affection that someone just touched me. But when Jesus does this, he makes himself so incredibly vulnerable. I mean, not least of which he could get leprosy. But then also, when you touch someone with leprosy, you become unclean. I mean, that's, that's what the law says. So if Jesus touches this man, people are going to think he's unclean. Now, we know that it worked the opposite way, right? Jesus made this man clean. He didn't make Jesus unclean. Then this man, he wanted so bad. That's all he wanted. He just asked Jesus, would you make me clean? And this is what happens, right? But Jesus, he's vulnerable. He, he could get leprosy. He could become unclean. You know, and not only that, but like, who's going to want to shake Jesus's hand for the next couple of weeks? You know, like, you're not just like, no, thank you. But, but also with all of that, just the really simple mundane vulnerability of what if the guy who just said, hey, man, don't touch me. No, no, people don't touch me. I don't, I don't want that. I'm not a touchy kind of person who I don't even know you. But Jesus touches this man and he says, I will, and the man is made clean. And you can read through the Gospels and see story after story after story where Jesus is touching people and making them clean. And you would be forgiven for thinking that's how it works, that there's something magical in Jesus' touch, and that's why he needs to touch people to clean them. But the story that immediately follows this kind of breaks that pattern and leaves us thinking, well, I don't, I don't, that, that couldn't possibly be how he's healing people. It's not just about the touch, so what is it? So the story right after this, Jesus is approached by a Roman centurion. 
Now, uh, as a Roman, that means he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. That means he doesn't follow the Mosaic laws of cleanliness. So he's considered uh, by the Jewish people worse than a dog. Like he's filthy. He's gross. You don't eat with, with Gentiles. You don't hang out with Gentiles. It's just not clean. It's just not something you do. But not only is he a Gentile, he, he's a Roman centurion, which means that he is a military authority. He's got a hundred soldiers that work for him, that are under him. Right, so he is a representative of the military authority that is occupying and oppressing the people of Israel. So he's worse than a dog, and he's a military oppressor as far as anyone is concerned. And he approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have this servant who's, who's crippled. They're paralyzed and they're miserable. Could you heal them? And Jesus says something that, that's shocking that you and I might really miss, uh, but certainly would have been very noticeable to the centurion, to Jesus, to everyone listening. He says, should I come to your house? And if you were a first century Jew, you might be forgiven for assuming that Jesus was saying, should I come to your house? I don't know about that, man. But we know the character of Jesus, and I don't read it like that. I think Jesus is saying, no, I think his offer is sincere. I think he's saying, should I come to your house? I think he's saying, yeah, I've been hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, and everybody thinks poorly of me for that, so why not add a Roman centurion to the list? But the centurion, he knows the weight of this. He knows how vulnerable Jesus is making himself by offering to go to his house. So he says, no, I don't think that's necessary. See, I know what it's like to be a man in authority. When I want to do something, I tell this servant to do that, and I tell that servant to do this, and the thing that I want done gets done. He says, I believe that you could just say it, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus basically says, everybody stop everything. Did you hear the faith of this man? And then he, the next thing he says is so wildly offensive. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. Many will come who aren't Jews, who are dirty, filthy, nasty, worse than dog Gentiles. They will come and they will feast at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus goes from saying, hey, should I come to your house? To then saying, hey, how about you come to the house of my father and feast with me and eat with me? And then he says some words and, and, and the servant is healed. So what's the pattern? What's the connection? How is Jesus healing people? If it's not touch, because this story makes it very clear, like he was nowhere near the servant. What is it that Jesus is doing? What's the common denominator? What's the thread? What seems to me that it's a vulnerable expression of affection that Jesus is using almost every time, if not every time he heals someone. Right, it's a vulnerable thing to go to someone's house, isn't it? That's why in our culture, if you want to get to know someone that you haven't really spent time with before, what do you do? You don't go to their house. You don't say, hey, can I go to your house and have a meal with you? No, you say, let's go get coffee. Let's go to a restaurant. Let's go to a neutral place that isn't either of our house because it's just, it's less awkward. It's less vulnerable for me. It's a vulnerable thing to go to someone's house. It's even more vulnerable though to have them to your house for a meal, isn't it? I remember my wife and I in, in 2020, when we, we lived in Southeast Asia, we were doing some anti-trafficking ministry, and um, there was a woman we had met, I've told you some stories about her before, uh, but we had met her on outreach. She was married to a pimp, um, 
And she was so hungry for community and connection and for something clean and something good. And, and she would have us over to her house all the time. We probably had dinner at her house maybe 12 to 20 times. She was always trying to like figure out how to scheme to get us to hang out with her and eat food with her. Uh, and, and then after some months, we started to be close friends with her and even with her husband and with her two daughters. And we started to trust them. We started to see the Lord doing things in their lives. We started to see them letting women free and protecting other women. And, and it was crazy. But at the end of the day, he was still a pimp and she was still married to a pimp. Um, and it, it hit a point where she was having us over so often uh, for, for meals that she was clearly starting to get really hurt and offended that she had never been to dinner at the house of anyone on our team. And you could just see the blow every time we dodged that question, you know, like, hey, I'd love to maybe have dinner at your place sometime. And, and so me and Colleen, we talked about it, we prayed about it, we talked to the team about it, and we decided that maybe we could invite them to our house for dinner. And, and so I remember we were having uh, dinner at one point in time and and, uh, and the subject came up and she was saying, oh, I'd love to have dinner at one of your houses. And Colleen said, well, why don't you guys come to our house in a couple of weeks and, and we can share a meal together. And they accepted the invitation and we made plans um, and we were very relieved when her husband got a little bit sick last minute and had to flake out, but she still showed up with the girls. And they came to our house and let me tell you something, there are very few times in my life when I have felt as vulnerable as I did that night. But they came to our house and we ate tacos, which they had never seen a taco before. They had no idea what to do with them. Go figure. Um, we had tacos and we ate together and we laughed together and we hung out together and we joined each other's company. And towards the end of the night, we played this Bible project video that talked about Jesus and sin and redemption. And they asked questions and we prayed. And, and a few months down the road, her and her husband came to the Lord. And just a couple weeks ago, her daughter was baptized. Um, yeah. And... It meant so much to her. It was such an expression of affection and love and tenderness. So how does Jesus mitigate the risks of being generous with affection? I think he doesn't. I think he just makes himself vulnerable, come what may. And if these stories aren't enough, skip down a little ways in the gospel, right? And see what happens when there's this, this friend of his that he's been traveling with for three years, one of his 12 closest friends, his name is Jesus, and, or sorry, his name is Judas. Um, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Or Peter, right, the guy who was one of the three best friends in the inner circle of the inner circle, right? And Peter, on the night that Jesus is going, he's marching to his death, Peter has abandoned him. And not once, not twice, but three times, he says, I don't even know who Jesus is. Never met the man before in my life. And who is it that ultimately, like, abuses Jesus and beats him and rejects him and mocks him and scorns him and kills him? It's his children. It's his people. It's his friends. Jesus becomes very generous with his affection. But he doesn't protect himself from the vulnerability that comes with expressing affection. And so I think the question for us is not how do we mitigate the risk of being generous with our affection, not how do we shield ourselves from that danger, but how do we pick up our cross and follow Jesus? And when Jesus expresses his affection, yes, he makes himself vulnerable. Yes, it backfires. Yes, he gets wounded. Yes, he gets rejected. Yes, he gets hurt. But also sometimes people get healed. And when he died on the cross, it was a real rejection. He died for the sins of the whole world and how much of the world wants nothing to do with him? So many people. 
but also you and me are in this room because he's healed us with that vulnerability. And so for you and me, it's not how do, I, how do I figure out how to be less vulnerable. It's how do I figure out to be more generous with my affection. And I can almost guarantee you that if you choose to become someone who is generous with your affection, you will be hurt, you will be wounded, you will be rejected. But I can absolutely guarantee you that you also see people healed, perhaps physically and definitely spiritually. So what do we do with that? How do, how do we become generous with our affection? Well, the first thing I would say to you is, is maybe spend some time today before you go to bed, spend some time alone with the Lord and just say, Jesus, how can I be generous with my affection? Jesus, how can I show my affection for my wife or my kids or my husband or my father or my mother or my brother or my sister? How can I be more affectionate towards my family? Jesus, how can I show my affection for my coworkers? for the people that I see on a regular basis? How can I be more, more generous in my affection for strangers? Jesus, maybe, maybe, you know, how could I do something? Like, is there an idea? Like, could I go to work and make sure that I look everyone in the eye and say their name and put my hand on their shoulder and say, I'm so happy to see you today. Maybe I could find one person every day to say something deep and meaningful that's encouraging. Maybe I could find one person every week to really serve them in a way that says, I love you and I care for you. Maybe I could set aside 20 bucks a week to buy a little present for a different person every week that just says, I was thinking about you. Maybe, maybe we, could, we could set aside one night a week to invite someone into our home to eat a meal with us. And we could sit and we could laugh and we could enjoy food together. And maybe we could offer to pray for them before the night's over. Just, just find one thing between you and the Lord that you could do and, and do that until it becomes a habit. And then add a new one in, a new habit of generosity with your affection in until you become a master at being generous with your affection just like Jesus was. And don't shrink back from the vulnerability. Don't say, I'm not gonna say something positive to my, to my coworkers because it's gonna feel weird. Don't say, I'm not gonna give that person a hug because maybe they're not a hugger. Just be generous with your affection. And the last thing I would say is this. If you feel like I don't really have enough affection to be generous with, like I just don't, there's just so very few people that I even feel affection for. Then I would say it is long past time that you start spending more time with Jesus because he has a lot of affection and he's gonna share with you, I promise. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so generous. The existence of creation was an act of generosity, Lord. And you who are God, who are so strong and so powerful, have chosen to make yourself vulnerable to us every moment of history. And you have paid a great price for that over and over again. So help us to be like you. Help us to, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow you, Jesus, to be vulnerable as we express our affection. Jesus, and help us be vulnerable as we express our affection to you. Help us be generous with our love for you, as well as for your people. Amen.